Welcome to MedDevice Podcast, Business of Eye Innovation. I'm your host, Chris Morrill, and joining me today is Dr. Arthur Cummings, who is the medical director of the Wellington Eye Clinic in Dublin, Ireland. Um, Arthur is somebody that I've had the privilege of getting to work with a lot over the past, what, 10, 15 years on various clinical projects and somebody that I enjoy talking to very much. And about a month ago, Arthur emailed on a Saturday as he was working on a presentation for an upcoming conference, and I'll let him describe that a bit more. But he asked me a question and he said, do you mind if I quote you this way? And I looked at it and I went, uh, no, I do mind. <laughs> and that sort of started a, an email exchange. So Arthur, welcome to the podcast. Thank you, Chris. It's my pleasure to be here. Thanks for the invite. So this presentation that you're getting ready for, and you're going to be delivering that, I think it's next week, right? Do you want to give a little bit of the background? Yeah, sure. It's the ACOS meeting, the winter meeting in the US. So it's the ACOS meeting in Aspen. And Steve Slade runs that meeting. And you know Steve well, and he always enjoys provocative talks. So what he said to me is, please speak about what's new in Europe. And then when it does get to the US, is this something we should adopt? So interesting, interesting take on it. So I thought to myself, given what I've been hearing recently about EU MDR, that you couldn't really start this talk off without saying something about it. That's when I, I looked and saw what was being said. And that's what I sent to you. And I said, Chris, because you're the, the biggest expert I know in this space. And I said, does this reflect where we are now? And what it said was, the era of looking at what's new in Europe and wondering when it may get to the US is fast approaching the end. The latest EU MDR regulations are going to significantly slow down innovation in Europe and the pace of new products entering the market. And that's when you came back and said, you've got to be joking, that's not right. And so I said, well, how would you, how would you counter that point? Because it's, it's, it's quite a point, common point at the moment. Mm. And you gave me six very interesting facts. And I'll just go through them. And you said, it takes no longer to get clinical studies approved under MDR than under the MDD. Or if there's a difference, it's, it's non-material. The second thing you said is you acknowledge that there's no doubt that there is a shortage of notified body bandwidth, which the EU never wanted to anticipate. And this is the pain point at the moment, but it's due to improve imminently. The third point you said was, Obtaining a CE mark remains one of the most cost-effective investments a company can make because the CE is accepted in many Asian countries. So fast tracks you into a huge market in Asia. The fourth thing you said was around costs. The cost for obtaining CE for an implantable device like an RL, for example, will run up to 5 million euro. The cost for obtaining FDA approval for the same product will cost between 30 and $35 million. The fifth point was, you mentioned that it seems, if you look around and listen, that there are good alternatives by going elsewhere outside of Europe and the US. But you've seen some companies coming back to you after trying these alternative routes and finding out that they run into obstacles there in terms of government roadblocks and you know all kinds of things. And then you ended by saying, currently, studies can be up and running in the UK, Spain, and other EU countries within three months. So when someone approaches you, within three months, you can run this. So that sounded extremely positive. And then I happened to have a conversation with someone who works in, in one of the large corporates and is in this space and said, I'm really pleased to hear that things don't look as onerous as they, as they do. And she said, well, the experience is slightly different. It does still look not onerous, but it still looks like it's slowing things down for them. Hmm. So 
tell me if these facts are right. What, what they told me was that the EU MDR is due to be implemented mid next year, mid 2024. And then this was postponed to 2027 for high risk products like implantables, class 2B and class 3s, and postponed to 2028 for lower risk products, um, 2A. Um, I don't know if that's exactly where we are. It, and this is where there's a lot of confusion, Arthur, because uh, the fact of the matter is that the MDR was enacted by the European Parliament in May 2017. And then there was a phase-in period, which ended in May 2021. And every, at that point, the assumption was that there was going to be that everybody was over to or working on an MDR CE mark. Um, a couple of things happened. The, the EU, let's face it, the EU completely mishandled getting notified bodies transitioned. Um, the, the transition process for notified bodies was extremely difficult. And we lost half the notified bodies that there were in Europe. For medical devices, for IVDR, it went from 35 to 6. So there's a constraint capacity issue that we all agree about. Other than that, the MDR is alive and well, and the notified, believe me, the notified bodies and competent authorities are following it. Where the, the confusion lies is in the fact that there was an extension to transition your products that were CE marked under the old directive to the new regulation, which expires in May 2024. In at, towards the second half and, and for much of last year, the EU, everybody was saying there will be no change. There will be no change, but there will be no change. By Q4 last year, the noise level was so loud that in December, the 27 EU health ministers gathered and had a meeting. And out of that, they were told, come up with a solution. So out of that, they came up with legislation that created a sort of fail-safe method, a fail-safe measure which was approved by the parliament last Thursday, will be fully into law when it's published in the official European bulletin, um, which should be in the next week or so. What that does is it extends the transition time for a company with an MDD, a directive CE, to an MDR CE. For class 2B and class 3, that time is extended to May 2027. For a class 2A, it's extended to May 2028. However, because everybody, every regulatory person I know, every legal expert in medical device, the, the competent authorities, everybody, the biggest concern was that companies would just stop worrying about it for two years and wake up in 2025 and start screaming again. So the legislation also requires that companies in this between position must have a contract signed with a notified body for their transition to MDR or appoint an M a notified body to do MDR work by the end of 2024. So technically speaking, you have to start working on it by next year. There's no argument about that. And that's where, and I, as, as I said to you before we started, I've had two people remark to me in the past week, oh, MDR is on hold. MDR is not on hold. It's just that the transition time has been extended because of this constraint capacity. The other thing that I think is the pain point that the ophthalmology companies, especially the larger ones are feeling, is that up until MDR, there were 
very few clinical studies done on intraocular lenses, which let's face it, that's that's what our world revolves around in ophthalmology is IOLs and injectors and all these things related to cataract surgery primarily. You never had to do a clinical study because the CE mark was on the material, not on the lens. And so now all of these manufacturers are having to go back, create clinical studies, find ways to collect clinical data. And that is hard. That's a, that's a sea change. When you go from not having to do this to having to do this, it's like the, you know, a good analogy is one of those super tankers and turning it like the one that got stuck in the Suez Canal. Yeah. You know, you, they don't turn on a dime. Yeah, Chris, it's very interesting. I mean, that's a point that sometimes I suppose we're not totally cognizant of, but the CE mark previously was not on clinical. It was on the materials and the process of manufacturing. And if you think about the PIP scandal some years ago, where this is all really stemmed from, at the end of the day, I think there's no one is in disagreement that this is in patient interest to make things safe and, you know, to do local studies. So I'll tell you what I learned from this person. They're up to date. They're ready to go. They're ready to go in 2024. So they're totally up to date. This is what they said. And I'd love to know how you respond to this, that I can get my facts right for the, the talk next week. So one of the things that was said was that notified bodies are proxies of the, of the regulatory agencies. They're proxies that are in between. They're independent. Yep. Currently, as you said before, they're short-staffed and apparently they require education because this is clinical as opposed to what they did before. So the process is significantly slowed. And another thing which was said, which I'd love to know because you have this on a day-to-day basis, is the comment was made that sometimes they sort of get stuck down in the guidelines and the letter of the law sort of thing rather than looking at the scientific evidence. So they, they can get stuck with the guidelines because they don't have the clinical perspective maybe. and then. Just that there's a sense of significant delays currently adding to costs. And I yeah. think there's no one who disagrees that it's it's important to have clinical evidence for products that we use in the EU. But how would you respond to those few comments? They're, they're all completely true. The notified bodies are quasi-public agencies. It, it is to me very ironic that companies are required to contract with the notified body. It is essentially a consultant to your company but they in no way, shape, or form help you get, you know, get it done. They're there to judge you and critique you and and you know get you a CE mark. And these this is a very different role. I've been involved now in we've been involved in a couple of of with a couple of our clients on transitioning. And there's some things that we've learned along the way about what they're looking for, you know, and there and it is it is quite formulaic, you know, but it's, but what they're looking for now is that a company demonstrates knowledge of its clinical data and interprets that clinical data and understands the market environment and that they're operating. And this is really different and much more time consuming than when you just had to dump everything into a clinical evaluation report, all your technical stuff and a literature review and call it a day. You have to put more work in. And yeah, when you're when you're a manufacturer, you know, we have a project right now, we're working on five clinical evaluation reports for one manufacturer. You know, that's that's a lot of work. And it's a great business for consultants. So I get the I get the pain point. But once this is done, once you've made that transition, it's done and you're just updating. 
So, Chris, you know, the fear that was sometimes bandied about when I was reading a bit about this is people were saying that smaller companies mightn't be able to bear all the costs and go through this. We may find a lot of smaller companies mm. um, falling by the wayside and a lot more consolidation. Do you think that's that's accurate enough? Yeah, I, I think, unfortunately, I think that is going to happen. I think there's going to be mergers. You know, we've taken the decision to work with a couple of smaller companies to help them maintain their CE mark at a lower fee than what we would charge other companies because we felt that was important because we know the impact on the smaller manufacturers. And we can't do that for everybody. We're, you know, we try and find a happy medium. And yeah, the other thing is if you're a class 2A, I do know, especially on the diagnostics right now, they're looking to the US because, and to Switzerland and to the UK, because you have to remember both Switzerland and UK opted out of MDR. So Switzerland has its version-ish of MDR. UK is stuck with the directive. So you can find ways to get on the market more quickly while you're working through the MDR process. And so I think it also, companies need to step back and think about, you know, what they can do to keep the ball moving. You know, if they have an opportunity to the U.S., then do that, you know, look at the U.S. and a 510K because they're much, they're a quicker path for the most part that that's changed a bit as well. Look at Switzerland, look at the U.K. while you're pursuing that MDR CE mark. So, so Chris, I, yeah. I heard something really interesting and you'd know more about it too. And that is that Switzerland is committed to or certainly seriously thinking about accepting the FDA rather than any European. Um, I'm laughing. Yeah. So they, the Swiss, uh, I can't think of what they call their legislative body about six weeks ago enacted legislation that said we will accept FDA approved devices. We have two U.S. FDA partners that we work with, and they all they both went, oh, no, um, because FDA approval means different things to different people. You know, when you're an FDA approved device, that means you've gone through a full IDE pre-market approval clinical study. You've done three years. You know, you've spent millions. Whereas a 510K is a, de depending on the flavor of the 510K, is a much shorter, quicker process. And so I, I know a lot of companies are thinking, oh, cool, I'll go to the US and get approval. And then I'll go to, go to Switzerland. And, you know, okay, it's a nice thought, but it's still, Swiss, Switzerland's an extremely small market. <laughs> yeah, exactly. It's not like, I'm sorry, but we're not talking about 50 million people here. It's a smart strategy for Switzerland. It does not get you Europe still. Got you. Okay. Yeah. Well, look, I really appreciate that. I've got a much, much better idea. And it's, I think I'm not going to spend most of the talk going into the weeds over here, but just to give a flavor, just that it's not quite as bad as we think it is. And with good preparation, there's no reason why you should be held up by much. No, I, I don't think so. I think, you know, you've got to do the work. Every regulatory person I know keeps posting on LinkedIn saying, don't stop, do the work, keep it moving. You'll be much better off once it's done. Yeah, exactly. But as you said, you can't pause now. It, the, the goal, the, the finish line has just been moved. You just look at yeah. keep on working now and get everything done. Exactly, exactly. All right, so, brilliant. So what what was some of the other insights that you you gained on you know, 
our colleagues so use about Europe. What I went to with them was when you go and speak about what's new, I can only speak about my own experience and there mightn't be that many things that have been new in the last couple of years. So normally in a talk like this, I go and speak to my colleagues who are busy with all kinds of things and ask a whole bunch of them and people that you know very well who are working across Europe and are trying different things. And I ask them, you tell me which are the one or two things that you have used in the last couple of years that you really like, that you think has a lot of potential, and that you think once it's approved in the US, that our colleagues should adopt it. So I'll tell you as we go through who I spoke to. So it's in no particular order, but it's just the, the artists in my talk. So the first person I spoke to was, was Dan Reinstein. And Dan spoke about the new Vigimax 800. And um, Dan's always been a, I mean, he's a small guru and he understands it backwards, but he thinks this is a significant step forward. And it's very much quicker. It's, I think the, the entire lenticle incisions and um, dissection is done in like nine seconds, where previously it was 25 seconds. The laser itself looks, looks futuristic. It's got docking now that once you've docked, you can um, move the, the treatment zone. You have a centration overlay. And then also there's software to help with cyclotorsion. So it's certainly, it's improved. He's, he's very, very happy with it. He says that hyperopic pain, smile is also pending CE approval. So that's quite interesting, just on this whole topic that we've just had. So this won't be CE approval anymore. This will now be, what will this be while you're looking for hyperopic approval now? Oh, they'll, they'll, they're getting, they'll have a CE certificate as an MD, MDR certificate. You're right. Yeah. So anything that's in progress, you know, that, that's the important thing. MDR is not on hold. So the notified body stopped accepting applications for uh, CEs under the directive in December 2021. So for the past year, anything that had been, has been submitted is an MDR submission. Right. Okay. Fantastic. That's, that's, that's a very good point to bring out to people's attention. That even though we're waiting to, to transition in the meantime, there's going to be overlap for a while, I guess, with the products that mm -hmm. have already started the process. Right, that, that makes sense. Now I understand it better myself. Right, the next thing Dan spoke about too was he uses the Artemis. He's got um, a financial interest in, in the Artemis. He was one of the co-developers. But what he has shown with this ultra-high sound, ultra-high-frequency sound waves is how accurately he's starting to do sizing with ICLs. And he now has the ability to, when he compared this to all the, the other formulas out there and the other methods of doing this, and he's shown now that without any question, they're getting the most accurate results using this digital ultrasound ICL sizing. And they now have got to a point where they can have 96 percent of patients land up with a vault, a predicted vault within the eye within 300 microns of target. And if anyone doing ICLs, that's that's pretty impressive. It's probably the, the number one concern around ICLs because otherwise ICLs work amazingly well. Mm. It's just about the vault size is they come in a huge number of powers, but they're only yep. four sizes. And you can't directly measure the white to white, or you can measure the white to white, but you can't measure the intercellular sulcus distance so always using proxies and if your lens is too large you get vaulting forward if it's too small you might have too low a vault 
but so this this sounds very interesting and they published this recently and that's the other thing he's very excited about then i spoke with with burkhard dick and burkhard shared something he's very excited about and it's a device called the balkan direct slt so where in the past we've been doing slt using a gonio mirror and you know diverting the the pulses into the trabecular meshwork this direct slt is done transclerally the patient looking you know looking straight ahead like an autorefractor almost and the device locks onto the eye you digitally choose the points where you want this to happen and within three seconds once it's locked on it, it delivers the the energy and incredibly the energy delivery is exactly the same as you would get with the direct slt Mm -hmm. um with, with the, you know the classic one um but there's a lot of advantages there's no lens you're using to stabilize the eye it's got automatic limbus detection it's got active eye tracking treatment time as i said is three seconds and unlike regular slt you can do this for narrow angles there's space to get in and it's a very quick recovery so super safe and really a product now that you don't have to be a glaucoma specialist to be able to deliver the treatment and as we know from a number of studies now, that there are a number of people around the world who are using SLT as the first line of therapy for glaucoma, mm -hmm. you know, door-signing drugs. So that seems to be a really positive um, development. Yeah, I, I can I can tell you we uh, Belkin is a client of Meddevice, just a disclaimer, but we went did a hands-on demonstration. I've done a mock treatment, and it, it is it is just if I can line up a patient because I'm terrible <laughs> at that. Don't put me at a slit lamp. <laughs> but if I can do that, um, anybody can do it. And it is really, it is so fast. Um, and, and I do, I do think it's, it, it, it is potentially game-changing technology. It certainly looks like it. I mean, he, they did a fabulous study too with 48 people in one group and 47 subjects in the other. And they both, with direct SLT from Balkan or indirect SLT, both reduced the pressure by 5.49 millimeters of mercury. And at 12 months, 70% of the target population is are not using drops anymore. So it really seems to be pretty effective. So that's something to look out for. Um, then I spoke to Francesca Coronis. And what I must tell you, Chris, is many of these colleagues of ours had loads of things they could speak about. But um, the talk is only 10 minutes long, so I couldn't use everything. So I asked them for sort of their top one. And Francesco spoke about a lens that I've heard about, but that I haven't used. It's called the Hoya Vivinex. And it's a lens that's basically in the category of monofocal plus. And Fred, Francesco says of all the lenses he's used in that category, this is the one that for him stands out that, that gives him the best results. I mean, he's, he's very happy with it. It's almost the lens he's using mostly when he's thinking of, you know, a monofocal for one eye. He's a very big user of trifocals and mm -hmm. extended depth of focus lenses. Although, you know, the new terms are, full range of focus for a trifocal and increased range of focus for an EDOF type lens. Is that something that ACOS Europe is trying is, is trying to propagate? And it makes sense. I've started using those terms in the clinic and, and patients certainly understand them better than they do trifocal and EDOF. Yeah. Let me, let me ask you a question there because this was asked of me at some point this week and I can't remember who I was in discussion with. Are we seeing a move away from full range of focus technology because of the recognition, well, one, there's a lot of evidence that shows that with the non-diffractive versions of these EDOFs, there's much less trade-off. And 
at least in my experience, I'm seeing surgeons making a conscious decision to move away from trifocals, full range of vision IOLs. Do you think we're coming to a point where monovision, enhanced monovision, you know, monofocal plus, however we want to describe those lenses, are they going to become the dominant IOL that's implanted sort of like when we were making that transition from spherical monofocal to aspheric monofocal? That's a very, very good question. And I think it depends on who you're speaking to. So if it's someone who's a very experienced refractive cataract surgeon, I don't think that's going to be a huge shift. I think for the person who's traditionally been a cataract surgeon and it's quite new getting into trying to at the same time improve performance and give more of a range, that's why you're seeing that category grow so much because you've got you've got less risk in terms of patients being happy afterwards. You have a, a, a wider landing zone. And with, a, with some of these lenses, with a small little offset of 050 or 075, you can sometimes get an extremely functional range. So I think on that score, you're right. I'm going to jump into for a second. So I'm going to speak about something which is that I've been most excited about this last couple of years is behind the eye. It's actually what's happening in the brain and how we today can, with technologies, we can treat adult amblyopia. I'll get back to that at the end of this. But the other place where the company called Binox, and I'm on their medical advisory board, where they're making some amazing inroads is in the space of unhappy multifocal patients. So someone's been implanted and three to six weeks later, they're complaining bitterly. They're just unhappy. They're not seeing well the, the halos and the, you know, the glare is irritating them. They sort of want the lens out. They've had 20 patients already who've been scheduled for IOL exchange. And while they're waiting for a slot in theater, they put them on a fast-tracking neuroadaptation program. And to date, every single one of them has canceled surgery and said, I'm happy with my lens. So it's a fascinating topic. I don't want to go into too much detail into that now. I'll speak more about the amblyopia one when I get to speak about it. So what we've started doing, and I think a lot of people are doing this, and it's working incredibly for now. Numbers are still too small to really have a lot of experience, but so far, extremely happy. And what we do is we think of a solution where I never liked the idea of mix and match when you were using two different diffractive IOLs. I think that was just too much for the brain to accept. But if you have a, a monofocal in one eye or a lens that behaves like a monofocal, so a monofocal plus or the lens, the likes of Vividi, that kind of lens, where you don't have these diffractive issues and um, you've got a high quality of vision, just a slightly reduced range versus a trifocal, you have that in the dominant eye. And then in the other eye, you have a diffractive multifocal. The brain doesn't, it's not aware of what the diffractive multifocal is doing unless you close the dominant eye. Mm. Both eyes open. So we have found a fabulous approach that's working incredibly well. And for the group of patients who don't know exactly where they want to go, but they know they want the most complete range of vision, but at the same time, they want to preserve the ability to drive at night. We'd say, okay, there's no free lunch in optics as good. Alfred said a couple of years ago in a, a named lecture, it was an amazing lecture. And every one of my patients understands it when I say there's no free lunch. All right, I understand this. Where's the where's the um, compromise? So I'd say to them, we're going to get you a solution that's going to give you the most we can, but you've got to tell me what's most important to you. Is it the full range of vision or is it the the quality of night driving vision. For the person who says it's the quality of night driving vision, you start off by treating in the dominant eye with a lens that's not going to create glare and halos. 
lens of your choice. And then a week later, when you're doing the second eye, or whenever, a week or two later, when you're doing the second eye, you first note how much reading did they get on the first eye? Because sometimes they get reading more than you expected. And in that case, if they're happy enough with reading, you put the same lens in the other eye. If they're almost there, you put in the same lens with a slight defocus. But if the reading they got off that eye was actually quite disappointing, well, then what they get in the second eye is the trifocal. So that's the one approach. You're getting the full range of vision. Your night vision's fine. The other pathway is the person who says, no, no, no. What I want is I want the full range. I'd like to help the drive at night, but the full range is most important. For them, you put the trifocal first into the non-dominant eye. And a week later, you ask them prior to the, the second eye, when you close the eye we haven't treated yet, what do the glare inhalers look like? And the massive majority say, I don't have. It's not bothering me. Or if they were, it's getting better every day. And this is at a week. You know they're on the path to success. And you can then safely put a trifocal in the second eye. If they're saying, no, I'm not happy with this, and I don't think I'm seeing much of an improvement, well, then in the second eye, you put a lens that doesn't have diffractive optics. And that approach is just working out so well. That, and patients understand it immediately. They understand it. They understand the strategy. And you're sort of getting what they want but the pathway you're taking, you're navigating a pathway where you, you're mitigating risk as much as you can. Yeah, that's interesting. We're working on a clinical study that for uh, an IOL that the company's dark, so I can't go into many details about it. But there, the one week post-op on the first eye, we're doing a near visual acuity measurement. Um, and based on that, the second lens will be powered. You know, that that will determine how the second lens and yeah, I think it I think it makes a lot of sense because then you know you're picking up on anything the patient's not happy with. You're saving a lot of heartache and chair time by doing that little adjustment. Exactly. So far, we've been doing it for the last year, and I must tell you, I'm I'm very happy with that strategy. Francesca's always said this. He's always said that in his clinic, and I think Shiraz is like this too, is that you're you getting a presbyopic correcting IOL, that's that's the starting point, unless you're not a candidate. Unlike most places where still you, you, you're getting a monofocal, unless you're a particularly good candidate for one of these other technologies and you really want it. And I think over time, as our consenting improves, um, you know, if you're not providing these types of solutions, then your consent should really say to someone, I don't do these procedures but I have a colleague down the road who does. So if you do want something, and you can tell them why you don't. You can tell them, I, did, I don't do them because my, I haven't been happy with the results this far. But what happens is with word of mouth, eventually people are just collectively saying they love the freedom and the performance they're getting from these um, advanced technology lenses. So I think the day of just saying, I don't do, I don't do them um, at all is gonna limit your practice. Yeah, I agree. I mean, I certainly would not, if I went to see somebody for cataract surgery and they didn't offer me, or they only offered me a monofocal option, I'd probably turn and walk out. Um, yeah, you need the conversation. That's all. Yeah. You don't, they, don't, they certainly shouldn't push something on you that you don't want. Yeah. You've got to, it's got to be part of your, I say to patients always, when I do the consent, up until the point we'll be discussing all the things that can go wrong, <laughs> I'd say, right, up until now, I'm the doctor, you the patient. But the moment your lens is out, now you become a consumer. 
Now you tell me what you want and I'll guide you and tell you if it's going to suit you or not. But it's your choice. It's like going for your glasses. The optometrist tells you what prescription you have, but you choose the frames. This is a similar sort of concept. And it's, it's, again, it's understandable. Anyway, I'm sorry, I drifted off there. Mm. But so Francesco, the thing he's enjoyed most in the last year is this Hoya Vivinex um, Monofocal Plus. Then I spoke to Jorge Alio too, and Jorge, um, he's very excited about a lens called the Lumina Echo Lens, which is a real accommodative IOL. And it's a lens that um, works differently to anything else we've seen, where it goes into the bag, but there are two components to the lens that slide over one another. And as the capsular bag contracts and the equator gets smaller, so these two, call them pyramid-shaped aspects of the lens slide over one another and increase the power and he's very very excited about it he's very happy with the defocus curves and he's saying he stands fully behind if this lens ever gets approved in the u.s people should use it he's he's very happy with that lens he's also um, speaking about corneal stroma regeneration with cellular therapy they're doing some amazing work in that space where they make femto second intrastromal pockets and then they place decelerized laminar implantations this was what the study looked like into the pocket and on the other side a recellerized lamina and what they're finding is they can regenerate the cornea using this technique and they're getting amazing cases in keratoconus where they're significantly improving the shape of the cornea simply by placing in healthier corneal tissue into the into the stroma so also very very interesting that's it almost sounds science fiction yeah very very interesting something can do that yeah amazing first going to speak about what eric merton said to me so i asked eric what is he most excited about and most of your listeners will know that eric has has been i think for the last 10 15 years almost exclusively his refractive patients have been icl almost exclusively but he started using the the new schwint atos lenticle extraction device and um, he's done 120 eyes now, more than that, without any nomogram adjustment, without a single retreatment. And he is finding the device absolutely spectacular. He's loving it. Mm-hmm. So at the moment, he's not doing PRK or LASIK, but he's he's doing this. And he says it's just got a different level of control. Um, the eyes degrade very quickly. Um, it doesn't have, the lenticle doesn't have an edge to it, you know, a, a structured square edge. It's, it goes down to nothing. The zones are great. So, yeah, it's interesting. I mean, he's enjoyed it so much that he's he's excited about corneal laser surgery again. So again, he says when that comes to the US, he, he couldn't recommend it high, highly enough. And then also an awful lot of control in terms of centration, cyclotorsion. So I think in, in many ways, it's fantastic that, you know, the two other companies also bringing lenticle extraction devices to the market very soon. Azima is and so is johnson and johnson yeah and the fact that so many more coming to the market is going to reinforce that category and it's just you know you saw what happened with eczema is as new technologies come into the market they just raise the bar for everyone and i think we've we've entered that space now so that that's pretty interesting and then another lens that he was using um, is a lens from pablo atal and it's a lens that um, it's called the Art IOL. It's a lens that is 
meniscus shaped and it's conceived to to mimic the natural crystalline lens so what it does is it takes better care of peripheral astigmatism than our current lenses do and overall it just provides an optimized field curvature and improved peripheral vision for patients and i remember a meeting some years ago where Pablo Hall showed a simulation of with a regular IOL potentially what it may look like if you're looking straight ahead what the ground might look like and the ground mightn't be as 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 true as what it really is it might look irregular and you might you know misstep but with this lens you're getting much higher definition and accurate peripheral vision from the lens and Eric started using this lens and he's very very happy with it he's less peripheral astigmatism less peripheral sphere equivalence so less um spherical aberration less peripheral distortion and less dysphotopsia than even a standard lens so you and i spoke about dysphotopsia a moment ago and it's it's really important to remember that even standard monofocals have dysphotopsia um but this is less than a standard monofocal so he's pretty excited about this lens as well and then the last person i spoke to was um pavel and as i say pavel could speak about an awful lot of things and what he wanted to speak about what excited him most in the last while and this is something because he is exposed to a lot of things is he wanted to speak about lux smart and lux smart is also a increased range of focus lens that's not diffractive it's based on on spherical aberration and he just found this lens likely not getting enough exposure given how good he thinks this lens is mm-hmm. he just thinks it's a lens that that deserves to be spoke, spoken about more and it's got a very good performance range contrast is good glare and halo 32 to 51% still have some visual phenomena but this is again a, a function of we have this with a monofocal too you know one of the things we started doing in the clinic some years ago um and I lent us on our RSA forum we would simply examine a patient ask them do you have glare and halos and they say no and then you would do your your laser vision correction procedure and afterwards we would then very specifically say do you have glare and halos and then they say we show them on the chart and they say yeah i do and suddenly we think and so do they that we introduced them mm. what someone taught me to do given how long i've been doing this it's a late lesson in my life but someone said you should before the surgery when they're sitting in the foropter show them the same light source and ask them if they say glare and halos and say no i don't and they say well describe the white square to me and they say oh yeah there's a fuzziness at the edge well that's that's part of the halo show a discrete light source yeah i see some streaks so when they notice that they have pre-existing visual phenomena anyway post operatively it's just not an issue because it is pre-existing Mm. So I think it's something we need to bear in mind with our diffracted multifocals too is we the ones who keep ask the patients so you having glare and halos if we didn't volunteer it many wouldn't say anything I don't think but all of us who were who were using these lenses spend a lot of time up front educationally making sure people understand what the risks are and then the last thing is something I wanted to speak about was binox which is this dicoptic therapy so I mentioned binox earlier where they currently working on fast tracking neuroadaptation so first of all so far that 20 out of 20 people have said the dysautopsia totally manageable now i'm really happy with what's going on and um i'm not going to exchange the lens 
But our experience with them thus far hasn't been in that space. It's been in the space of adult amblyopia. So these are people who traditionally are, when they come into the clinic, they've heard this forever, is you're too old, it should have been picked up before you were seven, you should have been patched, all this sort of stuff, and there's nothing we can do now. And many of these patients walk around with quite a psychological burden of what happens if something happens to my good eye? It's like I'm, you know, in some trouble. And so the fact now that there's a treatment to them is, it's fabulous. It's so good to see just the relief on their face that there's something. Now, what happens with this treatment is you wear glasses that are um, one side's blue or green, other side's red. And you're looking at an image on a screen. And this screen is on your own screen, whether it's a laptop or a desktop. And you, this treatment's being done remotely. So you first get an assessment to see what your fusional virgences are like, what your seropsis is like, and how your acuities look. And then what the treatment does is, say for argument's sake, your left eye's got the red light source, and it's your lazy eye. Well, what they do then is they reduce the contrast on the other eye on the screen. So that now for the first time looking at the screen, it's made up of a 3D image, one in red, one in green. And when they come together, you see the 3D. Previously, you wouldn't have seen it because the brain's suppressing the one eye. But now because you've reduced the contrast in the good eye, so the two eyes now have the same level of vision. Now the brain's saying, well, I'm going to use these two at the same time. And so the first 10 sessions, and sessions are half an hour a day, uh, five days a week, and the total treatment is six weeks. And the first 10 sessions is about lifting that suppression and starting to develop stereopsis. And then the latter part of the treatment is about enhancing that. And I'm going to speak there about 20 patients we have who went through the program. And they these are patients, the average age was 42, the median. They varied in age from 23 to 54. They improved minimum three logmar lines on the amblyopic eye. So of 85% of patients who had no stereopsis, out of the thir- there were 13 patients out of the 20 who had zero stereopsis. 85% of them developed stereopsis. So from no 3D to developing 3D vision. The other seven patients, 100% of them improved their stereopsis all the way down to 50 seconds of arc. So we have patients who've gone down to 20-20 in that eye now and who function completely mm. normally. We've treated up to 45 patients, but the other 25 are in very different categories, experimenting with how much we can achieve here. And, and a number of these patients have resolved phorias, even small tropias. It's very interesting. But, but the sweet spot for this therapy when someone's starting out with it is the, the amblyope from mm-hmm. anisometropia. There, if there's no misalignment or very, very minor misalignment, less than 10 prisons afters, and there's no irregular fixation, you're fixing with a fovea, then the odds are very high it's going to work. And the company do an assessment for you remotely, and they'll tell you up front whether it's going to work or not. If it's not going to, they'll tell you it's not going to work. And if someone still wants to give it a go, they'll give it a go. And if it doesn't work, as they predicted, they get their money back. So they've got a very nice sort of no, no lose sort of strategy. So mm-hmm. that's been super exciting. And so that's why I'd say most of what I've seen recently has been what's happening on the brain side of things. First of all, with this for amblyopia. The second thing with what I'm understanding about what they can do for patients with diffractive multifocals or unhappy. And the next thing is just the way we're approaching the mix and match with a non-diffractive and a diffractive lens 
always putting the diffractive in the non-dominant eye um, is just working out so well. And so I suppose it's just a, a reminder that we ophthalmologists, we're so interested in the eyes, obviously, and sometimes very small parts of the eye, but at the end of the day, where vision is processed is, is in the brain. Yeah, we don't think about that too much, do we? We, we are very focused on the eye and not that connection to the, so, to the brain. Yeah, David Pinero, he's a, an optometrist, a super optometrist in, in Spain, and he is, I don't know, arguably one of the world's most knowledgeable people on the topic of, of how the brain processes vision. And he's given me um, material for a talk I'm doing in Aspen as well in a shark tank. So the shark tank's about the potential for, for Binox to address unhappy diffractive multifocal IL patients. And he showed the pathway that happens in the brain when you get a multifocal implant. So if you get a trifocal implant or even an EDOF that's diffractive, you have areas in your field of vision now that are in focus all the time, distance, intermediate, and near in the case of a trifocal. And there's spaces in between that aren't in focus. And unlike blended vision where the brain's saying, I'm using the distance eye now, now I'm using the reading eye, you now have to choose where you're looking. So there's the motivation to say, I'm focusing on intermediate. And then there's also some brain involvement to reduce the distance in the near. So you can focus on the part that you want. This is where these things are happening. Part of it's motivation, part of it's the psychological adjustment. But just the crazy interesting thing is the moment that you neuroadapt and things are going well, the pathway to neuroadaptation just proceeds seamlessly. You just get better and better all the time. And eventually you don't see these rings and halos at all. But the path where it doesn't neuroadapt is fascinating. It goes into this loop, some stride cortex loop that then as a reflex stimulates the anger and the frustration centers of the brain. So someone coming in who's unhappy with the result and they they're 20, 20 and they, they realize they can see where they wanted to see. And sometimes, you know, you hear someone saying, I, I, it sounds like I'm being unreasonable, but I'm not. They're just heavily frustrated. And it's part of this pathway. So the beauty with this is, I see two beauties. The one is that either for the person who's really about to exchange their lands, you can salvage that and help them narrow adapt. But the other thing is for the person who's not, not happy, if you quickly put them on this program and you don't see any neuroadaptation within 10, 12 days or no progress, then you can at that point make the decision need to exchange rather than waiting for six months and having an unhappy patient in your life for six months and then exchanging. So I think it's got a lot of, it's got a lot of value. That's what I'm excited about. And it is really interesting because we function under the belief that there's, if a patient doesn't neuroadapt, they don't neuroadapt, explant the lens deal with the unhappy patient. And on the amblyopia side, yeah, the, the assumption is that this is a childhood problem. It's not fixable after a certain age. And this proves otherwise. And that gives a lot of hope. If you can regain stereopsis in your adulthood, what a change in life. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, I think it's, you know, even when I did medicine is we were taught that the brain's not, not plastic in an adult. There's, there's not really neuroplasticity. But I read a book some years ago, maybe 10 years ago, called The Brain That Changes Itself. In fact, a patient gave it to me. She said, you'd enjoy this book. And I, I loved it. And one of the examples was cochlear implants. So you could give someone a cochlear implant. And when they first switch that 
the device on and the sounds are so metallic everything sounds like a bit like a spaceman um sometimes six weeks later in a 70 year old you can hold your hand in front of your mouth and speak to them or even speak over a phone and they can understand you so we can neuro adapt there's no question about it it's just now we've got tools that can help us do this um, and they can be quite specific it's, it's fascinating it's very interesting well arthur we have been uh talking for almost an hour. It's been a very amazing conversation and uh, touching on a lot of different a lot of different points. And I think anybody in the audience in, in Aspen will really enjoy the insight that you've picked up from our friends around Europe as well as yourself. And, and I very much appreciate you taking the time to talk to us today on the Business of Eye Innovation. Well, Chris, always good to speak to you. It's great to see you again. Take care and thanks again. Yeah.